disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, a follower of God. Well, the Lord wants us to know the answer to that. And to assist us, Jesus sits us down uh, <clears throat> with his disciples and gives us the greatest sermon that we've ever heard, the Sermon on the Mount. And he begins with the Beatitudes. And these Beatitudes describe the Christian character. We're to be poor in spirit, very humble, recognizing our utter dependence upon God. We're to mourn. So we'd be grieved over our sin. We're to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to desire it. We're to be of all people merciful and pure in heart and, and peacemakers. We're to be willing to receive, for Christ's sake, whatever reviling or persecution or scorn that might fall upon us as Christians. These are all descriptions of the Christian character and Christian disciple. But this morning and the uh, coming months, um, I would like to take the opportunity to address you um, um, and jump over those Beatitudes to the somewhat um, lesser known passages of the Sermon on the Mount, beginning with the 13th verse of Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> and, and when we get there, we begin to notice an, a change in in the um, the mood, um, the words are, are are more plain and more functional in some ways. Uh, words that have a very obvious and straightforward character to them. In these verses and through the remainder of the sermon, Jesus talks about the law. He talks about anger and lust and divorce and oaths and loving your enemies. Um, well, beginning with verses 13 and 16. We hear about the world and the church. So let's read these verses together. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Lord God, bless your word. Open our eyes to see. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in these um, verses, we see, first of all, we have this statement about the world. And on the surface, the world is really a remarkable place. I mean, it's, it's stunningly beautiful. It's, it's delightfully complex. It's, it's puzzling. It's filled with all sorts of beautiful creatures and creative people of all sorts. But there's also a dark side and a decaying side to this world. Our Lord doesn't dwell on this, but it's clearly implied in the text. And it underlies what he wants to tell us about ourselves and the world. It provides a context, a foundation that we, we need to think about to understand what he's telling us about the church and about the world. 
about light and salt and dark in a dark, decaying world. Uh, so first, um, we think about the darkness. Now, the world, of course, wasn't always dark. Um, God, in whom there is no darkness at all, did not did not himself create, in a sense, the dark things that came with the fall, that came with the sinfulness of men. It all began when men rejected and rebelled against God and rebelled against his loving rule over us. And we, we turned away from that. And God was compelled uh, to impose the sanctions or, or curses that he had warned Adam and Eve about at the time of creation. Uh, this darkness and deviousness is in the hearts of men, uh, husbands, uh, selfishly, ignorantly, and, and ignoring and neglecting their wives and refusing to love and cherish them. Wives being dissatisfied and critical and manipulative of their husbands. Children, for all their native innocence, are, are not really innocent at all, but selfish and demanding from the very start. This darkness is buried deep in our hearts. Jesus said, for out of the, the heart comes um, evil thoughts and murder and adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Those are, that's not my list. That, those are Jesus' words. And, and I don't think it's intended to be exhaustive either. If anyone knows the human heart, it was certainly the Lord Jesus. Um, it, it, it's the darkness in the human heart, in fact, that really makes the world such a dark place with mass shootings and child abuse and suicides and genocide and heartless terrorism. It's hardly even possible to turn on the, the radio or television or online news reports and, and not be scandalized and, and saddened. Um, I, I'm not sure that the world today is any worse than it was 100 years ago, but uh, certainly the instant you know, global media that's at our fingertips on our smartphones. We can, we know a lot more about it today, don't we? And well, <laughs> that's why we need a savior. And that's why the word world needs to hear the gospel, because in many regards it is a dark place, and it's also a, a decaying place. It's marked by decay, darkness, and decay. And to understand Jesus' description of the church as salt and light, we need to think about decay. Uh, we recognize that there's an element of decay that, that characterizes the world as well. It, <clears throat> it's it's um, also implied by our Lord's words in this text that uh, the world is decaying. It's, it's rotting. It's spoiling all around us. First of all, there's physical decay. I mean, things all around us are are failing, they're falling apart. Moth and rust destroy, paint cracks and blisters and, and wood rots and, and roadsides disintegrate and, and beautiful new cars turn into oil-burning, ugly old cars. Um, it's part of the universal process of decay. Even our own bodies uh, uh, decay. We, we no longer have the, the energy and the strength and the resilience that we we thought we had anyway 20 years ago. And, um, and, and, and we, we see that. God says in Genesis 3, by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground since from dust you were taken and from dust you'll return. Um, well, this is all the result of the fall. It's the, it's the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy. Everything wears down. 
higher forms degenerate into less efficient, less sophisticated forms, which, which means incidentally that the vast uh, majority of, um, of cell mutations are, um, are, are not improvements, but detrimental. Um, generally speaking, what we get is not evolution, but devolution. Physical decay is all around us. But, but in these verses, uh, where our Lord speaks about salt and light, it, it's surely more the, the spiritual and, and moral decay of the sinful world that he was most concerned with. Um, in our own nation, especially, I think we see this moral decay evident in a marked erosion of, of God's standards. We see it in the plummeting numbers of marriages and rampant easy divorce and ever-growing number of dysfunctional families. We, we see it in a growing culture of death, you know, abortion and infanticide, and growing acceptance, even enthusiasm for euthanasia. We, we see it in the growth of, of a pathetic, simpering entitlement mentality uh, that expects the state or the federal government to hold our hands and, and provide everything we want or need. Um, we see it in the, really in the wild expansion of sports and entertainment and, and energy, that, and industry rather, that, that just eats up our financial resources and occupies more and more time and attention from people to the point that they can't even uh, find their way to church uh, on, on Sunday morning, on the Lord's Day. Uh, this is the sort of moral um, weakness and disintegration that, that doesn't, it doesn't improve any society or culture, um, but it degenerates it and it makes it weaker, makes it less resilient. And of course, all this decay even reaches into the church. Um, uh, we um, we, we uh, see it. Um, it weakens, it eviscerates our theology and our lives and our eternal souls. The, the theology of once great mainline denominations has reached the point where many of them have denominationally rejected cardinal doctrines such as the inerrancy of Scripture or the divinity of Christ or the virgin birth or divine miracles or the, even the bodily resurrection of our Lord. So, darkness and decay is the background or the back drop or the context that Jesus implies as he speaks now in this text to the people of God. And uh, here we see these two statements uh, about the church. And uh, as we turn more directly uh, to, the, um, to the text, uh, he addresses the world as salt and light. He says in verse 13a, you are the salt of the earth. It's the business of God's people to serve God and to, and to serve the body of Christ and in even the world in which we live as salt. And what's salt? Uh, when we think of salt in this context, we should think salt, first of all, as a preservative and then secondly, as a seasoning. Um, now, salt as a preservative, of course, we live in the days of electricity, but especially before those days, in the hot climates of the Middle East, the, the chief preservative was, was salt. Um, it was, uh, food, food could be cured uh, and pickled in salt, keep it from spoiling. And, and salt was plentiful in Palestine. There were the, the marshes around the Dead Sea and the, the shoreline. And, and so when Jesus uh, uses this illustration about salt, um, 
people understood, as a preservative, people understood what he was talking about. Very valuable, very important. Now, how is a Christian like salt? In what sense uh, do we Christians serve uh, as a present, as a preservative of a, a rotting world? Well, here are a number of men standing around taking a break at their workplace and their conversation becomes coarse and off color and one of them's telling a joke that he read about in a magazine or on a website or a blog and that he shouldn't have been reading. When suddenly a, a, a Christian walks into the conversation and uh, he's, a, he's well known as such. He's known for his convictions. They, they know how he feels about such things. He, they know he goes to church and he, and he even reads the Bible and, 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 he's, and he's honest and he's chaste. And, and so well, the conversation changes and they, they break off from their sin. What's happened? Well, in a small way, um, in a small way, that Christian has served as salt. Um, and his presence has retarded uh, the, the tendency to, to decay in, in the workplace. And this sort of thing happens all the time with your friends across the fence and, your, and people you know. You have that sort of witness. And, in fact, I've often, often wondered if the presence of so many Christians in the United States, and there really are a lot of believers in this country, um, has not somehow help to preserve and keep it from getting worse than it might be. Uh, Christian judges, uh, Christian you know, legislators, uh, Christians serving on school boards and library boards and even in our local government. Christians simply speaking to their neighbors and friends and representing a, a, a righteous and holy morality, which, which has served our country well. Uh, you know, you, you remember in Genesis 18 where, where God informs Abraham of his intention to um, judge the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their over, overwhelming degree of moral decay and, and weakness in those places. And, and you remember he, he graciously at Adam's request uh, agrees to spare uh, the whole place if only ten righteous people uh, men and women could be found within those cities. Uh, and of course, in the end, tragically, not even ten could be found. And after God graciously delivered Lot and his daughters, the cities were destroyed. Um, but if ten could have been found, they would have been saved, and, uh, at least spared in that time. Um, now, we know in the end, in the last days, a judgment will come. But I do wonder if um, God's patience um, and is not bringing more temporal judgments upon this favored land has not been due to the presence of so many righteous Christians. I, I wouldn't take that to the bank, uh, but it's my theory. Um, so the question is, are you a salty Christian? Is your family being preserved from natural moral decay uh, that is part of our natural sinful tendency by a gospel witness, by, by your imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the way you live and by the words you speak. Uh, are your friends and are your neighbors and people that you work with, that is, people that God has providentially brought into uh, your life, are, are these people being salted by your words and deeds? Um, if they hear the gospel, which is the saltiest thing of all, and respond in faith, 
Now, they'll be saved and preserved for eternity. Now, I, I could say a great deal about that, but let me simply observe that unless the salt gets out of the salt shaker, it can't do much good. Well, another property of, of, um, of salt is a seasoning. Oops, I guess I jumped the gun a little bit here. Um, and, and, and that's what Jesus had in mind, perhaps as well, as he exhorted us to be the salt of the earth. Uh, that is, salt um, has a, a savor. Food without salt is often very flaccid and, and tasteless. I, I, I just have to put a little salt on, um, on a hard-boiled egg. It just kind of makes it, brings out the, the, the flavor. There's lots of things like that, aren't there? Um, and, and in the world, we're talking about the world in which we live. And in many respects, uh, really, in many respects, the world is sort of boring, surprisingly boring and bland and tasteless. And it needs to be salted with an, an exhilarating savor, savor of the presence and the knowledge of God. When a, when a man or a woman is born again and, and he begins to see and understand creation with a regenerated heart and a regenerated mind, everything looks brighter and more fascinating. He begins to see things in a different light. And indeed, for all of life, it's, it's more exciting and interesting from a Christian perspective. We, we see things. We, we, we get a different look. We, we get a depth to things. A part of being salt on the earth is being a saver for Christ. And, and part of that's making people thirsty a thirsty for Jesus, helping them to see the, the glorious flavor of a redeemed life. Uh, people were always attracted to Jesus. He was salty. His gracious words. What was so salty about Jesus? His words, his, his love, his gospel proclamation, his uncompromising fervor. Uh, he was anything but insipid. Um, Jesus walked into a room and it wasn't just like ho-hum, was it? <laughs> you know, and it wasn't just fire and lightning either. It was something gracious and salty and sweet um, about him. Men were saved by the application of sound biblical doctrine and they are. But they're not often very attracted to it. Now, that's not the initial attraction they're attracted by the salt. They're attracted by the peace and love and cheerfulness of Christians. And just as I might make this comparison, just as a, a mouse trap is not, uh, the mouse is not attracted uh, to, to the trap itself, which does the business, but rather to the cheese. Now, I don't mean to say we should all be cheesy, but we could all be a little more salty. We, we need to be savory Christians. Um, People ought to see and hear something in us that makes them a little thirsty. Um, if, if we're representing Christ, if we're living for him faithfully, they're going to see a measure of selfless love and compassion. They're going to see godly wisdom and, and discernment. They're going to see a sparkle in your eye. They're going to see the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Self-control. Yes. And we're also light. We're not only to be salt, but to be light. Jesus says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. That's our identity. And that's Jesus' second description of his people. They're salt 
and their light. Now, we understand that ultimately Jesus is the light of the world. He says in John 8, 12, um, you know, um, I am the light of the world. If anyone uh, walks in, uh, and whoever follows after me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of, of life. I wonder if you've ever stopped to notice a, a harvest moon or big the big moon we sometimes get on a clear evening night in the fall. And it really can be very spectacular. It's huge and it's amazingly bright. But it's not the light of the moon itself that you see, is it? It's, it's the light of the sun reflected on the surface of the moon. And so you and I must reflect the light of Christ, showing others to the cross, showing those living in this dark world that there is a bright way uh, of, of hope and blessing. Uh, in other words, our light is completely derivative. Uh, our light, by which I'm talking about Christ shining in and through us, uh, through that men can be led out of darkness uh, into the saving light of Christ. They see some believer and they say, you know, there's something about this person that's different. You know, he's more cheerful. He's not always going around like he's... Somebody, you know, his, his dog died or something, you know. Uh. And, and that's attractive to people because, because the world is a dark place. Um, you know, it, it, it's um, it, if we ourselves have been have been lit up by the regenerative power of the Savior and made into new creations. In Christ, then we're, we're called to share that light with others. Um, now, all the apostles would have understood this figure of speech. Uh, the apostle Peter says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And, and um, of course, you know, and, and he goes on. And he says, uh, Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Uh, that's the same thing that our Lord says in our text, in verse 16, Matthew 5:16. In the same way, he says, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, light brings cheer. Uh, when, a, when, when a man is lost or a woman's lost and, they're, and, and they see a light in the distance, um, they get hope. I think, oh, I'm not so lost as I thought. There's a house over there. Um, and, and it's a good thing. Um, it's a cheerful thing, isn't it? To, a hopeful thing, a peaceful thing to see a house with, with lights blazing through all the windows. And I don't mean just those little ornamental lights that people put in their windows. Those are very nice. I'm talking about, you know, um, I'm talking about light pouring out of the windows that suggests a, a, a house full of people and full of light. One of the greatest compliments I ever felt that I ever got was one time someone stopped in front of our house when we were living in the manse in Belmar. And, um, and of course, the lights were blazing all over the place because people always forgot to turn them on. But there was a lot of life, you know, and a lot of kids and, and, and they stopped and they said, you know, I just knew there were some Christians here because it was such a light place. 
you know, there's no room for darkness. Turn on the lights. Well, you know, that's just figurative, but you get what I'm saying. Um, our Lord gives two figures of speech to describe light further. He says, uh, uh, well, it's like a city on a hill. Uh, can't be hidden. And a lamp on a lampstand that you stick up so it gives light to everything around us. And that's the way it's to be with us. Our Christianity is to be visible and transparent to the world around us, not private. People sometimes say, well, you know, I'm sort of, my faith is sort of a private thing. No. If I can't be private, <laughs> not everybody's, you know, spouting the gospel every moment. You know, I understand that. Some people are just always bubbling about Jesus. But, but we should all be a light for Christ. We all should be able to speak. I once attended a, um, a religious institution and there were um, a lot of Jewish people among the students. I think there may have been some of a Hindu persuasion. Uh, there were certainly uh, not a few Roman Catholics. Um, but I never understood a thing about what they believed. It wasn't evident. It wasn't clear from their lives. Uh, I myself was not a believer at the time, but by God's grace, I was, I was growing spiritually curious. And I remember asking one of them one time what they believed. I really wanted to know. I could have been converted to that person's religion. You know, if they'd just given me a little... <laughs> well, you know, I'm thankful that didn't happen. But, but, um, but you know, they, they didn't know what they believed. And they weren't able to explain it at all. Most significantly, I don't think they felt any sort of responsibility to make their religion particularly evident and clear to people. I don't think they felt any imperative uh, that their lives should reflect their life at all. But if I understand what Jesus is showing us in this text, as born-again Christians, our lives should not be like that. They cannot be like that. For us, the light of Christ must be shining there should be something alive and, and, and savory and interesting and wholesome about us. Uh, and, and we should certainly be able to, to give a reason for the hope that we possess. We should all be able to explain the gospel, at least in a basic outline. Even if at the end um, our witness is rejected and scorned, let no one accuse us of being dark or evil or private or obscure. We're the salt and the light in a dark and decaying world. Now, I think I need to um, end with a short uh, note of, of, of solemn warning because our Lord clearly includes that in the text in verse 13. He says, um, so I'm going to be faithful. I've got to relate this to you. And it says, if you're, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And again, in verse 14 and 15, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. Um, let's never forget um, that... The religion of ancient Israel was a true religion. It was truth. Um, they worshipped the true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And their prophets truly spoke of the fullness of their religion. But 
by the time of, of Christ, that religion and that, that, that faith had been greatly reduced. Um, it appears to have become weighed down with formalism and externalism. You know, the Pharisees are all about doing this and don't do that. And for, for goodness sake, don't dress that way. Um, they were all over that, you see. But, but um, you see, it had become a legalistic trap with no hint of grace and consequently no interest in the Messiah who, who was offered to them. Uh, the Gentiles, the Roman soldiers, the officials were really not much morally improved by the presence of first century Judaism. Uh, there was no light. There was no salt. And so when Jesus warns his disciples uh, uh, of salt losing its flavor and becoming worthless and light being hidden underneath a basket, he knew what he was talking about. And in like manner, we should be concerned not to lose our savor or hide our light. Let's not become so enamored by our theological prowess or our attractive buildings, or our comfortable ritual, that our hearts are not stirred. Let us let's never become so lazy and indolent that we forget that, that the great business of God is, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him. Um, surely, surely, if, if you're rejoicing in the gospel, if you're seeing your life change and the lives of other people changed by the power of God's Word, if you're seeking every day uh, uh, to in the light of Christ and uh, to live every day in the light of Christ and, and in the freedom of repentance and faith. This will never happen because, because your faith will be evident from the light of your face, from the sparkle in your eye and, and out of the overflow of, of, of your heart, your mouth will speak. The great hope of our society, uh, the great hope of our nation and as parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles will not be found in presidents or politics or diplomacy or social engineering or legal code. Another law will not make it. People are being shot. Well, let's pass some more laws about guns. Well, go ahead. But it's not going to do any good, is it? Because you've got to change the heart. The great hope for us is, is for an ever-increasing number of individual, salty, shining Christians. Each one serving as we are and where we are, retarding the decay of the world and living such bright lives, ready with such good news as, as by the grace of God will attract and draw others to the Lord Jesus Christ for good and ever. Amen. Amen. Lord our God, we confess our need to shine for you, uh, our confessed our need to, to love you and serve you and to enjoy you and to be, have a ready word and, and uh, always um, looking for and praying for opportunities to, to be a light around us. We thank you for the power of your gospel in our lives and the lives of those around us, we pray your grace. And in this church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.